if you're looking for the book of Romans, it's the sixth book in the Bible. So after the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then this big book called the book of Acts, and then Romans. So we'll be looking at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2 this morning. The Apostle Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Some of you might be familiar with the 90s classic movie, Goodwill Hunting. Uh, it's one of my favorites. I think it came out in 97 or 98, and I just choose to always live in the 90s, just such a great era. Uh, and in Goodwill Hunting, if you're not familiar with it, Will Hunting's played by Matt Damon, and, and he is a self taught genius. And nobody really knows this about him except his friends, uh, which is where we get that phrase, my friend is wicked smart. Did I do it right? Anybody here from the Northeast? Wicked smart. So he's on parole. He's kind of a diamond in the rough. He's on parole working as a janitor at MIT. And it's there where he's suddenly discovered by this prestigious professor who recognizes his brilliance and wants to help catalyze it to take him further than he ever thought imaginable. But there's just one big problem. Um, he is a diamond in the rough, and there's some things that need to be worked out in his life and his heart from his upbringing. So he sends him to his good friend and fellow professor and therapist, Sean McGuire, played by uh, Robin Williams. And, and their first interaction is anything but glamorous. In fact, it's, it's quite tumultuous, a little bit intense. We're not used to seeing Robin Williams flex. We're used to that sweet genie from Aladdin, and so it's a little bit off-putting. Uh, so it's a little bit tumultuous until... At some point in their getting together, Will will begin to soften up a bit. And it happens when he's confronted by Sean, Robin Williams, genie, with his brilliant intellect that no one can argue with. Like, you have a stout mind, bro. No one can argue with that. But your outlook on life and your experience with these things is quite shallow in nature. He confronts him at a park and says, if I were to ask you about art, you could give me the skinny on every art book ever written. Michelangelo, you know a lot about him, I bet. His life's work, criticisms, political aspirations, but you couldn't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. You've never stood there and looked up at that beautiful ceiling. With regards to love, which is a tender subject for Will, because he's going to break up with his girlfriend before she has the opportunity to hurt him. He must sabotage this thing before it can go south. And he says, if I were to ask you about love, I'd get a sonnet. But you've never looked at a woman and have been truly vulnerable. That someone could rescue you from grief, that God had put an angel on earth just for you, and you wouldn't know what it felt like to be her angel, to have the love be there for her forever, through anything, even through cancer. I, I quote this movie uh, and this scene because I think it portrays what can happen in our lives, this tendency that all of us might have to live within the theoretical 
without ever truly putting into practice the information that we've received. To live in the ideal, but not ever having it match a reality lived out in our lives. And, and we do that in so many ways. I do that in so many ways. And one of the easy ones is, is diet, right? Like everyone here knows at this point in time, Cokes and chips are not great for us, but they wind up in our basket, right? Every H-E-B trip, the difference between ideal and reality. Maybe we want to study something or want to read a book that's going to help us in some area of life. And so the book might even make it into our Amazon cart. We might even use our points to purchase it, might even get there. We might even get to chapter one before it's on the coffee table collecting dust for a couple of weeks, goes on the shelf never to be touched again. Am I the only one who's ever been guilty of that? Maybe it's, it's, it's time spent, right? We, we want to give more time to certain people in our life, certain people God's put on our heart. Maybe we, we've been thinking about someone we need to disciple. But weeks go on and months go on and we still continually refuse to give ourselves fully to it. This week, I was sad to hear uh, about the death and passing of the great Jimmy Buffett, right? The author and writer of Margaritaville, and I was reading an article yesterday um, that basically said he didn't even really like margaritas. Which I was like, I told my wife, I feel like I've been lied to my whole life. Like he preferred a variation of margaritas that didn't include sugar, just like a little tequila, a little bit lime. And, and then I was like, well, I guess that doesn't really have the same pitch to it. Uh, Margaritaville uh, sounds a lot better, probably sells a lot more. So he went with that and don't, don't. Don't think that I'm saying if you uh, like margaritas, have your full of it. That's not what I'm saying, right? Local gringos, uh, sales increase after pastor's sermon. That's not what I'm saying here. But this tendency that we all have, and I think when we look to the book of Romans, in this transitional portion of the book, chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, where Paul is now going to instruct us on how to live in light of these truths, his concern is that we might continue on living in the theoretical, receiving information without that information leading to a transformed life. That the gospel is more than just information received, intellectual understanding, but it is that understanding sinking into our hearts and causing a, a new way of thinking a new behavior, new actions birthed from the truths that we're received. As one commentator says from Ligonier Ministries, those who do not live as Paul prescribes in Romans 12 onward have never truly accepted his teachings in chapters 1 through 11. And so the evidence that we have believed is that we will have a life marked by faith. That it's not just about the profession from our lips, but it is a life lived out in faith towards God. As Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 3.18, and we all, that's us, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So we see here, in this passage, and in Romans 12, that to behold the glory of God is to be transformed by that glory. 
to encounter God is to be changed by him. And he says, I, I, I plead with you, brothers, be reasonable in light of what God has done for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Be reasonable by being sold out to Jesus, giving him all of you. You might be familiar with the name William Booth. He was the founder of the Salvation Army, and he was asked a quite curt question uh, in what seemed to be an interview uh, in which they asked him, how is it that you, an average, ordinary Joe, like of, of, of no brilliance, insubstantial man, how is it that you had such an impact in your generation? To which he replied, Jesus Christ has all of me. Jesus Christ has all of me. This morning, I'm asking myself this week, this morning, I'm asking you, what would it look like if Jesus Christ had all of you? How might your today look different? How might your tomorrow look different? Your marriage, your parenting, your work, every aspect of your life, how might it look different if Jesus Christ had the whole of you? And this morning, the rest of the time, what I want to look at are these three specific callings that I see here in Romans 12, 1 through 2. The first call is a call to be a living sacrifice. And we're going to unpack what that looks like. And, and the next two callings are actually going to uh, really unpack what that looks like to be a spiritual sacrifice. So the next two would be the call to disconformity. And then lastly, the call to transformation. So let's begin this with the call to be a living sacrifice. And so first we see here uh, the apostles appeal, his pleading with the Roman church. He's urging them, and, and the language used here I don't think is really portrayed that well in our English language. And so I went to some commentators, and R.H. Mount says that this appeal is an authoritative summons to obedience based on the truth of the gospel, an authoritative summoning to us to be obedient. And so where is this authority coming from? In part, it's, it's from his apostleship and the way that God has given him a special role in the church. But Paul points us specifically to the mercies of God. So as to say, because of the many mercies of God, now act this way. And so we have to kind of understand, well, what are the mercies of God that he's pointing to? And, and we don't have all morning or all day to, to go through Romans 1 through 11. So, so here's essentially a breakdown of the earlier portion of his epistle. So in, in Romans chapter 3, Paul puts us all on the same playing field. Like, no one is good, no, not one. Like, the smallest infant, there's not anything innately good in them. We're all unrighteous, haters and against God and our life. Like, nobody's batting a 1,000. No one's even Martin Maldonado batting 160, frustratingly, right? Like, we've we just been cut from the team altogether. We're all unrighteous. And then from there, he'll begin to unpack the many 
mercies of God. So crash course right here. Chapter 3, 25, he shows us the redemptive sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, that he has become the propitiation on our behalf. That was a sacrifice in which an animal's blood was shed for the appeasement of God's wrath so that mercy might come forth. That's Jesus Christ for us. Then he points us to the righteousness that is received by faith. Then us while enemies, he shows us God has made peace with us chapter 5 verse 1 beyond that we have reconciliation to god our relationship to him completely restored we have freedom from the power and grip of sin on our life through the power supplied through jesus we have the abiding presence of his spirit in chapter 8 verse 11 beyond that we've been adopted as sons and daughters of the most high God. He has brought us into his family. This love that we now have with God through Jesus Christ is a love from which we can never be separated from. And Paul expounds on that. I am convinced that death, nor life, nor angels, nor powers, present things, things in the future, height, nor debt, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Does that stir you up this morning? And then lastly, there's a lot we can say between chapters 9 through 11. Some of you are like, is he going to get into that? No, uh, let's just kind of summarize these verses by saying he's the covenant-keeping God. Uh, That a promise made by God is a a promise kept by God. And so Paul uses this sacrificial terminology. And like I said, he points us to this uh, sacrifice of propitiation. Christ dying on our behalf. And then the language points here to another type of sacrifice in the Old Testament, which is a sacrifice of dedication. And this is a rational, reasonable response in the believer. And what he's saying is, this is to be a living sacrifice. So as to say, an ongoing, continual life of dedication to the Lord. Not a dead sacrifice and not a a momentary burst of enthusiasm only to be absent for weeks or months at a time, but a life fully dedicated to the worship of God. And he says that we're to give our bodies to this. What does he mean by our bodies? Is he just merely concerned with the externals? Showing up and doing the Christian thing and and saying the right thing and having the language? Is he just concerned with the externals of our life? I would say absolutely not. But what's implied here by Paul is our behaviors. He wants visible, lived out, bodily evidence that our lives are built on the mercies of God in Christ Jesus. And the body includes the whole of the man. So as to say, his mind, his heart, hands, feet, tongue, speech, ears, all of us, everything we do in life is to be an act of worship, displaying to the world around us that our God is merciful, kind, compassionate. As Paul says in Philippians 1.20, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, 
but with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. I, re- I was saved at 19, so I remember in, in my 20s, 20, 21, 22, I, I used to meditate alone and, and pray, and sometimes I used to do this practice where I would stare at my own hands, uh, and, and I used to just get blown away in the fact that Christ came in the flesh, and, and he had hands like my hands, and, and they were probably a little bit rough, and, and just the, the reality, he lived in the flesh, and then from that place, I would begin to pray, God, use my hands to glorify your name. Like, they're not mine anymore. The Bible tells me I've been blood purchased. And so rid me of thinking that these are here for my own selfish gain. My ears, my eyes, my heart, my motives, my everything is now yours. Help me give this to you. And there's something really important that I want us to grasp in verse 1 of Romans 12. And it is the order in which his summonings comes. Before commanding us to obedience, which is right, Paul reminds us of the many mercies of God. And so early on in my Christian walk, I was so caught up in my performance. Like I would get so frustrated dealing with things that carried over from my former life that were still a battle for me even though I was born again. And so the lust of the eyes, lust of the heart, I was still fighting that. And so if I stumbled, if I fell in any way, I, I would start to physically hurt myself. So irritated at sin in my life that I would drive my own fist into my face. And then to hide some stuff, I just started doing it on my thigh, staying up all night frustrated. I don't want to do this anymore. And and praise God in his grace, he he grows us and was able to show me how that was not right. That was trusting in in the flesh, trusting in myself and my own performance rather than trusting in the mercies of God. But I had a Bible professor who said something that revolutionized everything for me spoke to me as I was sitting in the back of this old smelly gym. He said, when you find yourself struggling with sin in your life, struggling with disobedience, oftentimes we strive to do more or or, or muster up some kind of strength in the flesh to get past it. But don't, don't necessarily try harder. Try to see more clearly. And that's what I realized was that I was so fixated on my sin that I wasn't actually looking to Christ. And as I began to do that, I began to literally feel the Lord transform my mind. As I began to pray out, God, give me a right understanding of this sin. Show me the beauties and glory found in your son so that whatever comes my way as a temptation is can't be compared to the joy that I will have in faithful obedience to you like help me see that it is better to love you and to serve you than it is to give myself to that give me a greater pleasure and desire in your will and the Lord begins to transform us when we do that this last week Man, with, with, with sleepless nights, and it's getting a little bit better, um, 
uh, maybe three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning. Uh, we're doing this thing. You feed, and I'll burp, and I'll put him down. And so Rico was, was fed. He was comfortable. He's a little bit fussy because uh, he wants his pacifier, right? And so I, I, I go to Courtney, and I say, hey, baby, do you know where you put the pacifier? I'm already a little bit irritated because I'm like, I'm so tired. It feels like my soul is sucked out of my body, um, kind of still in that zombie life. And, and so uh, she says, it should be here or there. Great. I go, I go here, and then I, I go there, and it's not there. And, and so I'm irritated, right? I'm, I'm tired. I'm having a hard time right now. Baby's a little bit fussy. I go to the hallway, and I go, it's not like with this groan in me and, and, and she replies well baby i don't know what to tell you <laughs> which is what all of us want to hear right so i go back i said i'm just gonna i'm just gonna rock him and as i'm sitting in the rocker the lord pierces my heart and all i could think about was christ in the garden the night he's betrayed a sleepless night in which he's praying and interceding, going to the cross after that sleepless night, on the cross, praying for his enemies. And I was brought to my end. Like nothing will press you in and show you what you're made of, like a lack of food and a lack of sleep. And I was pierced, I was convicted in that moment. And I just said, God, I got nothing in me. Like this is, this is me. I need you. I can't be what I'm called to be. I had to go in, in confession and, and then confess to my wife, I'm sorry. That wasn't right. I'm sorry for that. And, and so many times we, we live, I live from the mistakes I've made. But, but when I see this passage before us, I think what Paul wants in us is a life that is so transformed that when we're pressed on all sides, like when that list of things to do is on top of us, that mountain and all the anxieties of life and we're tired and without food, we're just kind of pressed in, all of you are going through it in the week, that when we're pressed in, we're so transformed that we bleed grace. We bleed mercy. And I want to get there. I want to be pressed down and not bleed arrogance, rudeness, selfishness. I want, I want the gospel to come out of me when I'm pressed and when I'm squeezed. And this is a lifetime process. This is a lifetime process. We've got to move a little bit quicker. Um, secondly, we see here the call to disconformity. In verse 2, he says, do not be conformed to this world. And some of your translations might say, uh, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world or the customs of the world. And so it's really no good for me to just say, don't be conformed to the world without unpacking for us what is the pattern of the world? What is he referring to? And so Romans chapter 1, Paul essentially breaks down for us what is wrong with the world. Like, what is wrong with the universe that we live in? And by the way, everybody knows that something is wrong in the universe. Everyone here who has believed in Christ understands, but also every atheist will agree something's wrong in the universe. Like, if we look back at 7,000 years of history, or if you want to say 50 billion years, whatever, if you look back on history, we know something's wrong when we look at humanity's 
history. The whole universe knows that, but what they do disagree on is what is the cause of the brokenness? Like, how did we get here? And, and then even more than that, what we'll disagree on is that how do we treat it? What do we do? Where do we go from here? The whole reason that Oprah Winfrey had a career is because we know that something's wrong in the universe, right? Which kind of paved the way for Dr. Phil uh, and, and then Jerry Springer. Where, like, why in America are we yelling, Jerry, Jerry? Do you guys remember that? Was that the only weird 12-year-old watching that? Then it became Steve. Remember that? Steve, Steve. You know, we're broken. That's why. And now it's just a little bit different 25 years later, right? Now it's podcasts and YouTube videos. And then somewhere along the lines, this happened. Like I kind of blinked and all of a sudden uh, life coaches are a thing. Where, where people are like, here's all my money. I don't care. Just tell me how to live. I've even had guys make a sales pitch uh, towards me. I thought they just wanted to be friends. And then they're selling their product. And I'm like, I I'm okay, man. How did we get here? Here's something interesting. The U.S. self-improvement market, and there is a market, is es was estimated in 2019 to be a $9.9 .9 billion market. And by the end of 2023, that's this year, it's estimated to be upwards of $13.2 billion. Our society is broken, and they know it. And so I'm, I'm wondering this week, like, what would it look like if you and I lived such transformed lives as the C3 body of Christ that, that we just became walking billboards of the mercies of God displayed in Jesus Christ? What would the surrounding culture around us look like if we gave ourselves to him and that Jesus Christ had all of us. Like what kind of thumbprint are we leaving on this community? Would anybody know we were here if we weren't tomorrow? Amongst all the things that the world wants to diagnose with this self-improvement market, some of them are, are selling these lies that if you just have a better body, you'll be happy. Right, if, if I could bench 300 pounds, have rock-hard abs, look a certain way, fit into those yoga pants the way the model does, then I'll be happy. Finances. If I could just have my 401k in line, my Roth IRA in line, my finances are there, my security and that is, is fine, then, then I'll be happy. If I can just be more in touch with myself and my needs, I'll be happy. There's no need for me to go into just how sexualized our culture is, right? Like one of the most sexualized cultures in history. And here's the thing, that nobody's really satisfied with the sex. And so it's manifesting itself in, in gross ways. Paul says in Galatians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And so in Romans 1, 21 through 23, he breaks up for us 
what the pattern of the world is and why it's broken. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and here it is, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. If you were to break down what has gone wrong in the universe, it's essentially this. Man has replaced worship of the creator for worship of the creation. And when we look at any sin, sex, power, money, like a lot of these things, most of it were God's idea. Like God is the author and creator of sex. But he created it to be within a certain parameter and to be experienced in joy. But that joy was to point us to the joyful creator. And so it's the same with everything that is created. God gave us to enjoy, for it to bring us joy, but also to point to him as the author and creator of that. Not to be a God in and of itself. And so when we elevate creation to being a God, our appetites are not fulfilled because they were never designed to do that. Like husbands will make a terrible God if you idolize that, right? Amen, women? And vice versa. Like wives will make a terrible God if we idolize them. They're meant to be enjoyed by God, but to point us to something greater, which is the beauty of the creator. My, my, my son, um, I laugh because uh, I'm, I'm convinced he's like 99% Courtney. Um, I'm just wondering what I got in there. I think the butt chin uh, might be a thing in him. Uh, but one of the things that I think he enjoys doing, uh, like me, is just staring at trees. Uh, I, I don't know much about trees. I've just always enjoyed staring at them and thinking about the beauty of God, moving them the way he wants. And anyways, one of the ways he's soothed is by looking at the trees outside in the backyard. And I'm not sure what he's seen at two and a half weeks, if it looks like what I'm looking at, but I just began the discipleship right there. I was like, look, buddy, do you know that God made that tree? Like, do you know that God created the gospel in that tree as beautiful, as lovely as it is? He said that a, a seed, if it doesn't die, doesn't bear fruit, but if it goes into the ground and dies, it will grow up and bear much fruit. And so I'm already training with him, you know, and I'm like, grunt if you agree. He's like, eh. I'm like, great, awesome. On to the Reformation and Luther and Calvin, right? The pattern of this world will elevate creation past its capacity to fulfill its promises. College campuses, work environments, social media, and and get this, political parties will all try to fit us into their mold. And as believers, we're to say no. No, we are to have a presence in all of these places. But to remember always that we are to be in the world, not of it. The question, are are, are you more conformed to the Republican Party than you are to the image of God? Ouch. Are you trusting more in your performance 
then you are on the mercies of God provided in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 8, 5 through 6, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life. And so lastly, we have this call to transformation. Verse 2, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The Greek word here for transformed is used about four times in Scripture. A metamorpho, it, it means to change into another form. To literally be transformed. And it's the same Greek word that's used to say that Christ transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration when his clothes became dazzling white. And the disciples just kind of fell there fearful. And so the reason why we must have a transformed mind is because, like we've already said, we're broken. Like, I, I came to know the Lord at 19. And I became a new creature, yes. But it's not as if 19 years of indoctrination of the world just vanished from my brain. Like, like being raised in this American pie culture where the world told me what is good, what I need to pursue, what I need to be fulfilled by. It's not like all of those things ingrained in my brain just vanished instantly. And so the call for us is that as we're born again, we give ourselves in devotion to God to continually, ongoingly having our minds transformed to have a new way of thinking, to where our thoughts begin to look like Christ's thoughts. Our mind begins to be devoted to the things of God. All of our struggles with sin, no matter what the sin might be, starts with the need to have a renewed mind, a new way of thinking about sin, and a new desire to do what is right. And the spirit of, age, of the age has told us, like I said, what is beautiful, what is, what is right, quote unquote, what is good. And, and so many times we don't even recognize that our pattern of thinking might be off. Which is why the psalmist says in Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. We cannot be passive about this. We cannot be passive about this. This is something that we must take action in. Peter also exhorts us in a similar way. First Peter 1 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also must be holy in all of your conduct. And so what are some of the ways that we pursue a transformed mind? I would point us primarily uh, to what is called the ordinary means of grace. If you're familiar with that term, you know what I mean. What are the ordinary means of grace? They're these, public worship, gathering here like we are this morning, the public reading of scripture, sitting under the preaching of the word of God regularly, discipleship, 
giving ourselves to being discipled by older, more mature Christians, and then also giving ourselves to helping raise up the next generation of Christians. True Christian fellowship, living in community with one another. You have every opportunity to join one of our community groups to live in the body of Christ. Taking communion like we did earlier where we're reminded of the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. And then in addition to all of these, get alone in the secret place. Be alone with the Lord and ask for a transformed mind. You have not because you ask not. We plead with him. We pray, God, renew our minds. And from that place, sometimes we just have to be honest with the Lord. Some of the saints of old have prayed, Lord, I want to want thee, so give me a desire for you. I long to be filled with longing. Change me and give me a new desire for what is good and what is of you. And in addition to this, this is just me, I would encourage you, find your personal grace bent. Find your personal grace bent. Like for me, I love the old dead guys, man. Like I love picking up a Puritan book, a reformer book, and I just get geeky about it. It makes me feel alive to the point where I start using the language and just get a little bit weird. And Courtney reminds me, like, people don't talk like that, bro. And I'm like, okay, I just need to adjust that. But find your personal grace bent. That's for me. It may not be for you. Right? For, for some of you, it's running on godly miles. And, and you just experience the grace of God on mile 15, Wheeler, somehow. Whatever it is, find your personal grace bent, how God has wired you, the things that fuel a fire in you for godliness. And, and not to freak anyone out here, but one of my personal bents is I, I love to contemplate my own death. Like, I love the Latin phrase, memento mori, which means, remember, you must die. And if you think that sounds morbid, like, that catapults me into wanting to live every moment for the Lord. Wanting to give myself to my family while I'm still here. Recognizing the fragility of life, that at any moment, I'm gone. I don't know how many days God's given me, so I'm just going to live to the fullest now. Also, if you think that's morbid, morbid I, I brought my, my, my fellow uh, brother, Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan, uh, to this. He wrote 70 resolution, resolution number nine, resolved to think much on all occasions about my own dying and on the common things which are involved with and surrounding death. And so find your grace package. How has God wired you? How has he knit you? What are the authors that light that fire in you? And then bend into them. These are just some ideas. We use the ordinary means of grace and then try to find out how God has wired you to pursue him uniquely. And then finally, he says that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There's much we can say here uh, with regards to what Paul means by the will of God. Uh, for, for, for time's sake, we're not going to go into all of this, but, but here's one thing we need to understand is that sometimes Scripture talks about the will of God, uh, and, and we need to understand in context what is meant. 
And so in this context, I'll just say that he doesn't mean that we're, to, we're supposed to know the sovereign, decretive will of God that is causing all things to work together according to the counsels of his will. Like he's not calling us to know the future, except to know that Christ will return. He's not calling us to ask God to give us this crystal ball so that I can know every little step I'm supposed to take in the future. That's not living by faith. And by the way, sometimes Christians get a little bit weird with this and struggle with how am I supposed to know the will of God? A few years ago, uh, I was getting a haircut uh, at this barber shop, uh, and this old lady across the whole place was staring me down uncomfortably. Uh, and then she left, and I was like, okay, good. I don't know what that was about. Uh, she comes in, the little doorbell goes, and I'm like, oh, no. She's like made a beeline towards me, leans in and says, young man, God wants me to tell you Jesus loves you. And I'm like, awesome. Like, great. Thank you. Like, I received that. That's awesome. And she's not fully satisfied. So she gets a little bit closer in my face as my hair is getting cut and says, I know you're a Muslim. I, I was shocked, the barber was shocked, and I just look at her, and I, my, my beard was a little bit long then, I, but um, I just look at her and say, ma'am, I'm, I'm, I'm actually not. Like, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm born again. I've, I've followed him for, for 10 plus years. She wanted to qualify that. Like, where do you go to church? And I'm like, down here at this place. I'm actually you know, serving there as a deacon at the time. And so, anyways, don't get weird with, with the will of God. I just say all that to say that, right? But what, what Paul is probably pointing us to is that as our minds are transformed and renewed, as we begin to think Christ's thought, then we will be thinking and knowing what is good, what is acceptable, what is perfect, living a life of faith in all that we do, given to the glory of God, Washing dishes to the glory of God. Washing clothes to the glory of God. Working to the glory of God. In all that we do. At the end of goodwill hunting, so back to that, will, transformed and changed, and now desiring to put into practice what he knows about love, inspired by his therapist, steals his line refusing a job so that he could pursue his girlfriend as she's moving and leaves a note that says, I had to go see about a girl. All of us this morning, knowing the mercies of God, may we now turn to him in the only way that may be deemed rational, in a life that beams and radiates thanksgiving and displays to the world around us that our God is merciful. That's your takeaway this morning. Will you please pray with me?